Welcome, reanimated fans, to this week's episode. Uh, we, I am H.A. Conrad here from Brooklyn with my intrepid co-host, Stuart Tiffin, an intrepid guest star, Kyle Diaz. <laughs> no longer in Hawaii, surrounded by chickens, but hopefully coming with uh, some better audio fidelity today. Did you bring some chickens home, though? No, that I think that's extremely illegal. Yeah, <laughs> I was um, not able to get any any uh, sort of foodstuffs through that that Hawaiian security per- uh, perimeter. <laughs> um, but you know, you're back. It's good. You had a good time. Mm-hmm. It was it was wonderful. You're like it's all right. You know, <laughs> it's like uh, pretty I've been pretty back long for a few ago weeks now here in Hawaii in <laughs> Seattle where it's snowing again. So now it's snowing know. and, and it, it's a distant snow- memory. Stuart, you don't have snow where you are, do you? We did have snow, uh, but not in not in my town, but 15 miles north. Uh, they got a couple inches, and everybody lost their damn minds, um, yeah. which is pretty rare on the valley floors here. Because, I mean, 15 miles north of me is also Cloverdale, uh, California, is also like one of the hottest places in Sonoma County. So it was just I- ironic that they also got like three inches of snow. But so- um pretty crazy um but in any case we were on a slight break just because some things some, some personal things got in the way uh some familial things on my end so um but but hopping into it we're going to do uh, a review of two episodes today and it's please hold my hand and endure and survive but before we get into that we have one very small news item, not totally small, but kind of cool. I don't know. Um, but for those of you who don't know, I Am Legend is going to have a sequel. Maybe. Um, maybe. It seems like they seem pretty like they're doing it, but maybe they're just hyping it up. I don't it's know. been 14 years. <laughs> I think six, 16. Yeah, but I don't know. It seems like it's, it's been a lot about it. But Yeah, anyway. we'll see. We'll see. Um, but in any case, what they're going to do with this, though, is kind of ignore the ending of the movie that they had come up with or the theatrical ending of the movie. And they're going to do a new ending um, that is closer to what the book's ending was. Um, so we shall see how that actually plays out. Um, but, I, you know, regardless, I'm kind of excited to see it. And after this many years, I'm, I'm interested to see how, how they decide to kind of tweak this a little bit any thoughts on that i think it's it's really ballsy to come back after almost 20 years and be like you know the ending of the first movie yeah forget that we're, we're doing a different thing and you know will smith i'm sure well i don't know is he attached to this project he's not yes I don't think. yes he, he, he is. is and michael b jordan okay so that's that's something to look forward to i do remember that now we've talked about this in the last couple of years um I sure it's it's pretty funny. I'm sure that the uh, ending was changed uh, because of studio meddling in the beginning, you know, to begin with back in 2007. And it's really funny that they would have changed it to something where the star dies. I mean, spoilers for the end of I Am Legend, I guess. But basically, you would you would think that they even at that time would have already been working in the mindset of, hey, maybe we'd like to make another one of these with Will Smith someday. And we don't want to have to awkwardly retcon him back into existence. Uh, but I guess they're just like, yeah, people can read about it online and they'll figure it out. How are they going to do this? So they said <laughs> that there was a different ending that they didn't show and that they're going to just, I I don't know. Do you think they'll like re-release the original and show that ending instead and hope that people forget? 
I don't know. <laughs> I think they might append it to the beginning. I, I think yeah. they might literally just make it like the first scene of the movie. They'll just have some seventeen-year-old footage of Will Smith, and and then they'll be like, "This is how it ended," as you remember, you know, hint, hint. And then we'll, uh, wow, okay. It's I think it's a novel way to do something that's pretty crazy. So I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, and I mean, Akiva Goldsman is is doing it, and he's been he's been doing. I mean, obviously he was part of the original, but like. You know, he was part of the Picard series, which I don't know if you've been checking out the most recent season, but it's a lot of fun and it's all sorts of reunion-y things happening. So that's cool. Um, so I'm 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 on board with this. I'm on board with this. Hmm. Let's let's see what he let's see let's see what the see what he does. Let's see where it goes. <laughs> um, but in any case, let's let's jump. Not a ton of news other than that out there at the moment, but we don't want to get put too bogged down that anyway because we have a couple of episodes to talk about. Um, and I feel like somebody, some people, may have a lot to say about these episodes. <laughs> oh well, I imagine I imagine all of us do. Um, <laughs> I know these too. these are some pretty iconic elements of I'm going to say it the video game. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a lot of good parallels to talk about here, and I'm excited to to dig in. Um, these two episodes were both written by Craig Mazin and both directed by the same gentleman, mm -hmm. Jeremy Webb, who I don't think has done an episode of this show on in this run so far. So that's cool. Um, when we last left off, which was many weeks ago in real life, uh, we were talking about, oh, it takes eight hours to drive to Pittsburgh from 10 miles west of Boston. Do you recall that? Yes. I, yeah. I, I was going to I have written in my notes here just geography rant because <laughs> <laughs> and, and this problem exists in the game, too. But in the first three episodes, we managed to get from Boston to Lincoln, Massachusetts, which, as we famously remember, is about 40 miles west of Boston. And then somehow in a montage over Hank Williams song, they managed to get from Lincoln, Massachusetts to Kansas City, a distance of 1400 miles. And I just I'm just having a really tough time believing they had a completely uneventful drive except for a couple stops to siphon some gas. There were probably some events, Kyle, but maybe not monumental events. I don't know. I guess so. But geez, like it is. <laughs> Oh, when I when I realized that they were actually in Kansas City, like I've I've made that drive and and it is so far. Like so you have like like you know days in the car. Basically, we see them camping out for what like one night, and I'm I'm just like no way, no, <laughs> you would still be so far behind. <laughs> so you know, there's a couple reasons. You know, we know why they did this, which was because they're filming in Alberta and nothing in Alberta looks like anything on the east side of the United, like yeah. east of the Mississippi. Right. It, everything. It's it's just too flat and, and prairie. And I don't know what else it looks like. Uh, kind of like that scene of 10 miles west of Boston, which everybody freaked out about. So they had to they had to move it for that reason. Right. That's what Craig Mazin has said. But also, if you recall, Kyle, they do get to the western half of the united states in the video game after pittsburgh they just there's i think it's after pittsburgh i don't think that there's a lot of like interstitial parts of the u.s that happen in the game either they just kind of like no, say it, three months later we're we're in we're in the west it it is a problem in the game but new york to pittsburgh is like what maybe three and a half four hours 
So that's a lot more uh, believable than, um, you know, 25 hours to, to Kansas City. And then um, I think the game does a, a little bit of a, you know, clearer job basically saying, and then a shitload of time passed. Like, three, again, it takes them three months to get from Pittsburgh to Wyoming, which seems more reasonable in the post-apocalyptic landscape. It's it's not a big deal. It's kind of like in Game of Thrones when characters were just like, you know, wing-wanging all around uh, Westeros like in a day or two on the back of a dragon for distances that were supposed to be really long. But it it definitely stuck out to me. as like, they, wait, they're where? They're where? <laughs> <laughs> where, where are they right now? Um, I don't know. You know. fly over states. We don't need to worry about them. <laughs> you know what, though? H.A., you say that, but how many times have we skipped Chicago and zombie uh, and zombie I'm... stuff that I've been like, where? show me downtown Chicago as a, as a destroyed <laughs> mass. I I will say, though, the, the driving montage that they do, and um, not to skip over the beginning stuff, but that montage, the Hank Williams montage, 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 the, the montage of decayed and like rotten, um, middle like those flyover states that ellie's just kind of looking out the window and becoming despondent by looking at is that's incredible those are great sequences yep they are but also you know look this is the first time you know that she had whatever thought she had about what might be out in the world we're seeing just a little bit of a different view you know like i think part of her we saw her enthusiasm even even towards the end of the the episode three and you're seeing a little bit of like fear there. And there's like some, some interactions between the two of them um, specifically the one when they're like kind of camping out in the woods, um, which gives you sort of an idea that she doesn't know what the world has become and still has a bit of hope or a little bit of like naivete and Joel's very, you know, direct but terse <laughs> descriptions and comments. Um, and then there's the building of the relationship between them. Um, I I felt like they both did a really good job in this little in these scenes, um, even though there wasn't really dialogue. Um, so I don't know. I thought it was I thought it was all right and got us to where we were going. And otherwise, I just think it would be plotting and weird. And we're just going to have repeats of what we saw, you know, up until this point. So I think they're just kind of trying to move the plot along. Yeah, the dialogue that they did have, I think, was introducing these really critical, um, well, puns. Just the, yes. the jokes. <laughs> that, that is that is a that is such a huge part of that chemistry between those two characters. So I was really glad that they brought that in, and that Pedro Pascal is still playing. Um. His version of Joel is just slightly different, and and I've been enjoying how like resistant he is to to Ellie at this phase of the story. Look, he's trying to keep up his boundaries. We know that he's still suffering and mourning and grieving um, many things, not just Tess, but that's the most recent thing. And he, I would say he's even in some ways like that. I would say that note that he got um, from like in Lincoln was pretty, you know hit him pretty hard and so i think he's trying not to like her but he likes her despite himself and so that's kind of it's kind of fun to watch that dynamic and to watch his struggle there um because she's pretty she's pretty fun honestly <laughs> given despite despite everything that they're being through uh they've been through she it really does 
egg him on a little bit and she's she's kind of drying him out and despite himself he does tell her things even though he says he's not going to which i find to be kind of funny and so last time we spoke i talked about how um the gate the show's creators were kind of uh playing this little trick on the hardcore game fans by having you know several episodes where scenes were literally taken you know frame by frame from the video game and then having an episode where everything was completely different and and changed around um and so i thought it was interesting that after the departure of the bill and frank episode they're right back this week you know kind of like <laughs> reassuring everybody once again that yes we remember the game that this is based on and um as Stuart, as you alluded to like all those initial driving scenes and the tape that she finds of, of the Hank Williams song and the porno mag that she discovers in Bill's backseat and, uh, and the, the pun book, all that stuff is, is essentially word for word, note for note leading into uh, the firefight when they get to the, um, you know, the place where they have to leave the freeway outside of Kansas city. Mm. Um, I did want to also, you, you'd already mentioned that she, uh, shows some naivety in the woods and their camping scene she also like for this very rare moment shows uh vulnerability when she's asking him yep. those people you talked about uh because he's saying like you know we're too remote to be um for fungus to come and find us but the people those are the ones we have to watch out for um and they wouldn't just want to steal our stuff they'd have worse things in mind he like kind of really i mean i think he's trying to scare her but he does too good of a job and then she's like they're Nobody was going to find us out here, right? And then he ends up staying up all night, um, where at least you get the impression, because at some there's a scene of him like just standing there in the moonlight, looking out into the trees. Uh, I, I thought this was a, a very interesting scene of him like giving in, you know, because he, he still talks the talk. He's he's saying like, "You're not family. You're cargo. Um, mm -hmm. You only you only do stuff for family now, and that's all that matters." And she's like, "I'm not family," but he's like, "I know, but you're, but Tess is family, and I promised her, whatever." Uh, but he's clearly treating her like more than cargo because she expresses that she's scared, and the result is that he stays up all night looking out into the woods. Um, when he he's his plan was to drive all the next day and the next night to get to Wyoming. Right. Um, and I also like you know and and there's also like the there's some funny like little references just about like the sleeping bags and how they you know her she's like mine smells good <laughs> he's like yo <laughs> must have belonged to uh wait, wait, who's who did he say it belonged to probably frank if frank, that's the I case think he says. um and then you know they're they have this really funny back and forth about coffee because he had the coffee um in his little like thermos and whatever and she's like this is disgusting it smells disgusting <laughs> like my the biggest revelation there was that the qz had starbucks right nice little starbucks yeah, I thought that was fascinating right sorry i was just drinking some wine <laughs> we're After... drinking starbucks <laughs> you're drinking starbucks you're like a, a real qz resident yeah. um basically they <laughs> there's a really funny smash cut i love it when they do stuff like this i'm a sucker for uh, low-hanging fruit and she's, he's like, hey, look, you know, you can get some sleep. She's like, I'm not even tired. Smash cut to her being completely passed out in the mouth yeah. open, you know, and they're pulling up to Kansas City uh, where the story kind of takes a a twist. This they already spent. I don't even know how much it was of the episode, but it, it was it took some time 
like kind of building up this rapport between the two of them. I feel like it was 20 minutes maybe into the episode. Yeah, when they, I think when they so. It was, it was a good chunk. Yep. Uh, and so in the, in the game, when they're driving into Pittsburgh, it's the, it's a similar situation. Something is blocked. He's like, all right, well, I'm going to have to take this exit. And he drives down this cleared path. Uh, it's a very similar situation, but then in the Kansas city open city section where they're just driving it's not like they couldn't take a right or a left at some point they're just lost Mm -hmm. right um whereas in pittsburgh they drive the only route that's open and they get ambushed which makes more sense uh because there is a very fundamental difference in theory between the people who waylay them in pittsburgh which is they are they're murderers. They're just waiting to kill anybody who comes down the road and take their stuff. They might have just been taking their stuff. They definitely had one of those creepy rooms at Terminus where they were collecting all the teddy bears and, and uh, oh, yeah, shoes. Yeah. Um, but in we, we, don't, we don't get to see any of that set dressing in Kansas City um, where suddenly they're just being ambushed. And they could have gone any other any number of other directions, it felt like. Did that seem incongruous to anybody? Yeah, I... I felt like it was weird, like they had more avenues to not, I don't know, it just felt weird to me, I, but I felt like maybe this was a decision because of the way they had their set set up or something, I don't know, but it didn't It didn't feel set up in a way that made you feel like this was the only route they had to go, I guess, um, yeah. so I agree with you on that front. And then one of the most interesting things to me is watching these two episodes for a second time, because when you... The second, the, the second episode we're talking about today, episode five, really fills in a lot of the gaps about what's happened in Kansas City over the last 10 days, right? Yeah. Like, we're getting there on day 11 or day 10 slash 11 of since the fall of Fedra. Uh, we know this because we've seen both episodes, but you don't you don't have any of this information, this context. No. Um, and yet these, these three resistance fighters, because uh, they are in cahoots with Kathleen, they're not like... Maybe they're doing something off book, but they are basically what what's their purpose? Do you feel like when when Joel and Ellie drive into this ambush um and it it's like they yeah they they say they I think one person throws out a line like give us your stuff and then we'll let you live I think mm-hmm. um but what is is their purpose really just to uh be highwaymen? I thought they were out looking for Henry. So did I. And I thought that they thought maybe, I don't know, but it seems weird that they would think he would be with him just because, um, I don't know. Uh, I think it was just a crime of opportunity. Like they were out looking for Henry going door to door. And then they see found this, the supply thing. Yeah. Yeah. A random car just like driving through and they're like, oh, you know, let's, let's take this opportunity to, you know, to, to, you know, get get some get some stuff, get some you know people, whatever they they are hoping to get from these folks. But I I think it's just a a kind of a passerby kind of thing, which does seem a little bit less plausible. But the way that the story gives you this information, you don't really again you don't really think about it till the second um, watch through. I, I did think as and this is kind of like relates to what you were saying, Stuart. That like basically I enjoyed watching this episode, episode four, more the second time. The first time through, I thought it was a little slow and I thought it was a little boring. Um, and then after having all of the context of episode five, it actually made a lot more sense. So I'm not really sure whether they paced this entirely correctly, but most people seem to go with it. So it, it probably worked out fine. There are also a couple of instances 
of really awkward blocking in these two episode pairs. So I'm not throwing Jeremy Webb under the bus for his direction or anything, but there's um, some moments in the big confrontation that happens at the end of episode five that I also like just the spatial geography of the sets and the location where they had everything set up um, felt, felt a little off to me and, and characters felt too close together. So maybe it's just a, you know, I'm sure that I'm sure it's kind of tough for them to figure out how to stage these things with all of the practical dressing and stuff they have to do on, on site. Okay. Um, can you just define blocking? Like where the characters are in relation to the physical space of the set. So th- this kind of goes back to what HA was saying about how like the, the, you know, the kind of random nature that they come across these folks and you don't really know where they're supposed to be or how they're, how they came across this. It, it goes back to how you were talking about how they were funneled into something in the, in the video game. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes. I, 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 and I did really like seeing, you know, that same pickup truck from the video game encountering the same looking bent over dude saying, please help me. I'm injured or whatever it was. Um, I missed in the video game. Joel says, Oh, he's not even hurt when Ellie's like, aren't we going to hurt, help him? Um, mm-hmm. He just says hell no or whatever and drives uh, in the in the show, which I I don't know maybe maybe that was too like on the nose to to include in the show, but this is a video game scene uh, where they encounter these um, highwaymen and end up in a storefront with their truck disabled and have a shootout. Um, it's it's a cool scene in the game. It's a cool scene in the show, and you get to see it from another angle in the next episode which is also super cool. Um, so it is kind of hard in a way to separate these two episodes because of that that extra perspective, because you realize that Henry and Sam are across the street watching it, or yep. just Henry, really. Um, which also, a realization I had the second time I watched episode five, those three guys were right outside and they were about to walk out and would have gotten caught. Yep. Which I was like, head explode. I had you know, it did not occur to me until the second viewing. So this might be one of those shows you got to watch a couple times. Um, but this this altercation results in some big stuff. What did you guys think about the um, well, the shootout and how it ends? Um, I thought that you know, watching it a second time, I I think you do have to watch this these two episodes twice to get the context and. It's a lot better if you do it. Um, in terms of the shootout, I felt not having really played the video game, like it felt like a bit like a video game in sort of watching how it played out. But I also really liked um, Ellie's reaction and Joel's reaction. And and really, given the fact that there wasn't a ton of dialogue for like the first half of this, we just see the, these like little breaks and you see them kind of building this Um this rapport, even though it's somewhat strained, um, this particular thing, because it's so urgent, you see Joel's immediate reaction. And if there was any doubt that he was protective of Ellie, it is all, you know, we've seen his sort of like instincts kick in before, but here it feels a little different. Um, And she listens to him, even though she's also terrified. Um, And he's immediately trying to find options, find ways for her specifically to get out. and I like how it all plays out so that ultimately he she does save him or or at least distracts enough so that, you know, 
he can take care of it. And I thought that this was it, it was weirdly quickly moving, but there was so much information packed into these few moments that he, in the second watch, I was just like, wow, this is just I thought it a little bit the first time, but the second watch really it sort of sunk in and you could see it almost um, just they have this incredible rapport and dynamic and there's so much that is nonverbal. Um, and I think that Kyle pointed this out before is that just even the looks passing between them, the expressions, um, it's just a really, I don't want to say it has, it's better than it has any right to be for this silly little shootout, but it kind of is. <laughs> so that's what I thought about it. There's a couple of things here that I think are interesting just to add to what H.A. was saying about the shootout. Um, they're doing something very interesting with Joel throughout these two episodes and then continuing into um, future episodes that, you know, we, we have the benefit of seeing because we're recording a few weeks off from the show schedule um, where they're really um, showcasing more vulnerability in him than they ever did in the video game. In the video game, he's basically Superman. I mean, he just mows through people and he never has a moment of physical weakness in the kind of canonical storyline he does if you die over and over again because you can't get past the stupid boss or something. Um, but here he um, he has like, you know, a little bit of a, of a tough time hearing so he can't hear the guy sneak up on him who Ellie eventually has to kill. Um, later in this episode, that hearing thing will catch up to him again. He's noticeably winded when he's trying to run around and do stuff at a couple of different points. So they're developing this kind of like uh, aspect of his character where he's kind of past his prime and not sure if he can do this anymore that I think is a really, really, really fascinating um, choice. And I'm, I'm, I think it's really interesting and a departure from, from the source material. Um, I, I totally agree. They are laying the groundwork for uh, episode six, which I, I assume we've seen. H.A., have you seen six? Uh, I started to watch it, but then when you said uh, I was a little bit off in what I okay. thought we were talking about because I I made up a solo show that we did that we didn't do because I was sleep deprived. Um, um, well, so don't worry about it. I will not <laughs> yeah. go into more detail. But this this uh, what Kyle is saying is is right right on the nose. Um, they are laying the groundwork for some yeah some stuff that does not exist in the game, which is that Joel, this fifty six year old <laughs> person is uh is indefatigable in the game and yet uh pedro pascal is like nah dude i think he can't he can't climb 45 flights of stairs um so i'm well, sure they, but they even hit this like early on where where tess said this and he said this and you know they keep making reference to his knees <laughs> and it's like <laughs> his old knees and while i i appreciate that i just think it's kind of funny and it i do like how it adds to this because um, you know, he has old injuries and things like that, and he references them. And so he's not just this sort of automaton that is is this unrealistic superhero. This is just a very human person, right? So, I don't know. Yeah. The other thing that I think is interesting here with the shootout is that um, the young soldier or the resistance fighter, rather, who they shoot and then Joel has to kill... Um, starts begging in a really heart-wrenching way and you don't really get the full sense of this until you have watched both of the episodes but essentially these resistance fighters they're actually the heroes of some other movie that like there is a movie in which this ragtag group of folks who overthrows fedra is 
you know, actually the the heroic um the heroic heroes of 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 the story and there's some interesting kind of like subtextual commentary here that we should get into at some point about you know the whether fedra is a good thing or a bad thing in this world <laughs> that that we can talk about when we get to episode 5 but um you know i think that a lot of shows would just kind of have these be kind of nameless faceless people who just get dispatched without much uh, difficulty and that this even this little moment here is for Joel and Ellie kind of a a moral choice and a gray one at that so i just thought that was an interesting um interesting choice for the creators to make well and you make a you make a good point because one of the notes that i wrote down um especially during the second episode it's like if you it's like are, would these be the good guys like if you looked at this from a different perspective right um and i know that there's some ways that you can look at you know one specific character and kind of argue against that but depending on how you look at it like the story that is told as you said like they against all odds basically were able to um fight the tyranny that fedra had you know and 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 you hear the stories of fedra during these two episodes um which you know they do seem justified in what they did um in terms of or at least to the, you know in terms of like getting out from under their rule and so i thought that that was a very interesting way and the the sort of little like breadcrumbs they lay to to sort of bolster that narrative and it makes it 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 makes at least it made me feel a little bit off kilter um so much so that with henry it was especially as they reveal more and more about him i was just thinking that it was just such an interesting way to do a like sort of a character reveal of him and then you know you it sort of sets it on its head and it puts you into this interesting spot where it's like well you know in another pair in another universe with other information and a different interaction joel and ellie could have been helping out this sort of resistance group instead right so i thought that that was an interesting way uh to have this all play out and unfold um and even when you have the character that joel ultimately kills and he doesn't hesitate too long but the guy is saying things like uh, just let me go and bring, or you know, and bring me to my mother, and like things like she's right over there. Yeah, yeah, like it's... Like, like it's really <laughs> interesting. Like it's just an interesting and honestly, like heartbreaking thing to happen, and you're just like, I don't even know what which way is up. They packed so much into this little weird scene, so it's like a strange little gunfighting scene that normally would just be over and done with, and you wouldn't even think about it. But they make you think about it, and I think that that shows just the talent and and the artistry that they have. <laughs> they have poured into the show and so. the intent it's very mindful what how they're how they're doing this and i don't think we're going to run into too many black and white characters uh, throughout no, this no. game and, or too many black and white decisions um and and you know like the to add just uh you know to put a, a final nail in this uh section of the story this this um ambush uh ellie makes this decision to go out and intercede and saves joel's life in doing so, you know, in shooting this kid paralyzes him. And then, and you can see it all on Bella Ramsey's face where they're not really they're The the way that the camera is like lingering on her. And then she looks at Joel. They're not, I mean, they look at the kid a little bit, but it's a lot about her reaction to having done this and what she's feeling. 
mm-hmm. um, which they don't talk about really. They do later. He he does ask her about, you know, are you okay? In a very awkward scene later, but um, she almost starts to like basically break down in this scene, and then quickly walks back and goes back through the hole in the wall to wait until he has dispatched Brian. Uh, and I just thought that this was um, it's fascinating, and I think it's it's really. She's doing great work. I continue to be impressed by the young uh, Bella Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the next scene where she's like dragging a desk away from a door to let Joel in is I've done that a hundred times in that video game. So yeah, I feel I feel <laughs> that too. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they they then like quick they they move off. They like I don't know how much they didn't. Joel like got one or two things out of the truck. I assume. He basically left a treasure trove in the pickup truck is the impression you get because Perry yep. later tells Kathleen, oh, it's loaded. They're mercenaries, right? Um, but they, they get out with their backpacks and a rifle and, you know, whatever. They're two handguns um, and and hole up in in that, that like, barber shop. Uh, and b- before we meet back up with them in that shop, we meet uh, Kathleen and Dr. Edelstein. Um who has seen Yellow Jackets on this podcast? Because I have not. Um, I have not. I have seen Yellow Jackets. But Melanie and Lansky is also in Fargo and a bunch of other things. And she's awesome. <laughs> so She is the scariest kindergarten teacher I've ever encountered. I've never seen her in anything else. But holy crap. Is, is the rest of her body of work at this level? Um, She is... The first thing that I actually ever saw her in was Heavenly Creatures, um, which was. Um, did you? Did either of you see this? Is that a Peter Jackson movie? Yes, yes, it is, and it was with Kate Winslet and uh, Melanie Lansky, and she was she was super young in it, if I recall correctly, and she was insanely talented and amazing then, and I think she was like. I want to say she was a teenager, but she might have been a little bit older. Um, and it was like this, uh, the the basis of that movie were these two girls that ultimately killed one of the girls' mother in, in this, the character that Melanie Lansky uh, plays her mother. And she's terrifying in it, but they both are, but like. And she's very pathetic. She, it's like a very deep part for somebody like to just, and I'm sure she was in other things before that, but that was the first thing I remember seeing her in. And that was like 90, I'm going to say it was like 95 or something like that. Um, and so she just continues to impress. I, you know, um, just, but this, this thing is, you know, her unwavering, um, it's brutality but it's also like she it is a brutality that is sort of in this particular role um a a brutality that she feels is justified and there is to her there is no gray area like if you did a certain thing she does not care who you are and this is just like to me the exact i i mean they play this absolutely well um where you know she's incredibly effective what she, she does she leads these people but where is she leading them and why and it's sort of like losing losing the ultimate perspective because you know 
the bigger issue or the bigger sort of, I don't want to say the bigger big bad is still out there and they're focusing on basically, not, I guess, vengeance. Yeah. On people that they think have wronged them or wronged them towards Fedra and things like that. And so she's and, certainly not focusing on her seventh priority, uh, mm-hmm. Because no. it's not Henry. Henry's priority number one. Right. Um, but I think that's from episode five. That was a funny quote. Um, Kyle, tell us about uh, her role in uh, Yellow Jackets. So Yellow Jackets is when she first came on my radar. And I think that, that there are other roles that she's not absolutely terrifying in. Because um, I know, for example, that she was on Two and a Half Men for many, many, uh, many episodes. So... I don't know. I, I don't have not familiar with what she did on that show, but I, I can't imagine it was anything like this. Um, she is an absolute tour de force in Yellow Jackets. It it is she's the closest thing that the show has to a main character, and she is um, vulnerable and terrifying and uh, intense and kind of like everything in that she is here cranked up to 11 and also more kind of competent and, and ruthless so um i think that actually yellow jackets is a better showcase for you know the the uh role that she's kind of also doing here uh but just again like turned up even further i know that she's had to or not had to but she has taken to twitter and i haven't read that she was getting criticized for, or the show was getting criticized for casting her in this role. And I understand that she went on Twitter and was like defending the casting. I mean, I don't, first of all, I don't see any, any reason to criticize this. I think uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing is one of the cooler Mm -hmm. ways to, to do a character. And she is definitely that way. Like she looks like I said, like a kindergarten teacher or soccer mom or something. And yet she, yeah she is unrelenting and um gives no fucks and i just love this character so i was super psyched about it i i also think and we keep coming back to this but the weird way in which they dole out information here um might have contributed to that sentiment amongst kind of people who are watching the episode because when you first meet her it's you're kind of like oh how did this person you know, get this fanatical, you know, group of people to follow her. And she doesn't seem like a strong leader at all. She's making all these, you know, impulsive decisions. And she kind of like changes her mind from moment to moment. And she just doesn't seem like a very good leader. So like, how how could she possibly get all these people to follow her? And then you, you know, in the second episode of this, of this pair, learn that she's actually only been the leader of these folks for about five days <laughs> and, right. and um, very, very, very quickly leads everyone to ruin, uh, you know, almost instantly. So um, she, no, she's not a very good leader. That's the whole point that the show is, you know, is setting up that she's this kind of weak, impulsive person obsessed with vengeance uh, and who's ignoring these other very obvious, important things that need to happen. Um but in the first episode, you don't have any of that context. So you're just the impression that I got in episode four was basically like, you know, wow, this seems like a pretty, you know, unimpressive person to be to be leading this group in a way where she just shot their only doctor, you know, on a whim. So, um, yeah, it, 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 you don't quite understand what they're doing with her until episode two, where you're like, oh, no, this is this is a story about a resistance, you know, essentially 
being the dog that catches the car and then getting dragged along behind the car, you know, miserable. Uh, Part of the reason why you learn about why her followers follow her is because of of a line delivered by the character of Perry, who is kind of her lieutenant and uh, her shadow in many scenes. And he is played by Jeffrey Pierce, who voices Tommy, um, Joel's brother in the video game. Uh, He has apparently described the success of his uh, casting as the beard did 90% of the work, um, which is, I think is a funny thing to say. Um, and, and so, yeah, he, he is, uh, he's a great, I mean, he doesn't do that much, but the few things that he says, uh, certainly that one line that he delivers to her in their, her former childhood bedroom in episode five really mm-hmm. does kind of pave the way for you to understand why she is the leader of the resistance. Um, okay, so we we meet Kathleen. She kills the guy who delivered her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not just her pediatrician, her actual <laughs> like labor and delivery doctor. Yep. Uh, because he's a collaborator. A doc- and she kills him, a doctor with a set of skills in this apocalypse. And she thinks about it for a minute, like when she thinks that maybe he can help save somebody and then obviously he cannot but she just she's like all right well i'm just gonna get rid of him because she's like oh because henry is clearly responsible for this death so since this is a collaborator i'm gonna get rid of him so you see in that moment just how her reason is completely overwhelmed by her need for revenge um and it's I I think that it's just a really interesting way to introduce her because then you do find out more and more about her. Um, And as I said, this show messes with your mind because you're like, okay, I can kind of see her perspective. Like I don't, I I can see how she got to this point um, or how anybody could get to this point. Um, And so she's quite decisive and, she, as you said, gives absolutely, she does not care at all. Like, she's just like, I'm going to, like, going to continue on my mission here and nobody's going to get in the way. And I also think that she wants to appear to everybody else and show that she is, like, full of strength and not yielding, um, even though these could ultimately be bad decisions in the end. But... um I don't know. There's like a menace to her that is impressive. And I just don't think you would mess with her. Um, I think Henry is right. to uh, Both of them were right to have been hiding from her (laughs) in this particular sense. But, um, you know, they don't they don't give us much more of her in this particular scene. Like they then jump to um, back to Joel and Ellie. Is that right? Yeah. Where he's awkwardly asking her if she's okay. Yeah. And fumbling through that interaction. Yeah. Um, which which ends perfectly, in my opinion. He does the one thing that was going to mend his relationship with her. Um, because you know how I said uh, what I was talking about earlier, where she seems so broken right after she shoots mm-hmm. Brian um, in the face anyway. But as soon as he comes into the room where she was hiding, she's kind of back to her banter a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now she's sitting down. She's like kind of crouched. He starts to try to like fumble his way through asking her if she's okay and if she wants to talk about it mm-hmm. uh, and saying, oh, you know, it's not fair. You're too young to have to deal with this. And she admits that it's not the first person she's killed. 
which uh, from a 14-year-old should be a very shocking thing to hear, but I guess not in a zombie apocalypse. Uh, And H.A., you're like, doctors in the zombie apocalypse are so important, we need them, but I'm sorry, we know better. Uh, We've watched enough Walking Dead. How many doctors have they killed on that show? Like 15? All the doctors, I mean, they are the red shirts, definitely. Um, But it's it's still like being killed randomly by like a I don't know. Um, as opposed to going in and deliberately shooting him, still knowing that those skills like could be used because you're so pissed. Um, different thing. But anyway. Um, but the thing that Joel does correctly in this scene is give her back her gun, this little Beretta 32 caliber. Um, and this makes her happy and on top of that he shows her how to hold it and that makes her happy and it kind of like mends everything everything's better because he's given her back her gun Gun lessons yeah and you know even though he's like put it in your backpack you're gonna shoot your butt off she still sneakily puts it in her jacket pocket because she can never quite do exactly what he tells her he's all she's always got to have her own little um little piece of of the agenda um and then they, uh, they're so their plan is to find the tall building, and go up to it uh, once the patrols stop because they're doing all these house to house searches, and to climb up the tall building and see how they can get out of town. And that's their plan, and that's what they do. I think isn't that like kind of how the episode yeah. continues? Yeah. Um, they basically climb right up. They get to thirty three floors out of forty five because that's as far. That was their plan was to go as far as Joel could make it, which yep. I thought was also a funny, a funny line. Um, and then they uh, settle down in an office. He puts all the glass on the floor, and it's the second scene of the episode where she's trying to get his attention and it ends up having to yell at him before mm-hmm. he will turn around and be like, "What?" So they're really. They're not like laying it on too thick because I also didn't really pick up on this until rewatching it, even though but but I'm not the most intuitive viewer of things Um, like dude's deaf. Dude cannot hear. And certainly putting all that glass on the floor did not save him from the end of this episode. And the end of the episode, of course, is our first introduction to Henry and Sam where, you know, Joel wakes up and they're being held hostage by by Henry and by a small child with paint on his face <laughs> which i was i was kind of like oof like you know we we see that this goes down relatively amicably but there is no way that small child is is gonna do well matched up against joel i thought they picked an interesting you know way to split up that workload between the two of them with what with henry going after ellie and then sam having to cover joel from like six inches away with two unloaded weapons though we learn in the next episode yeah that's true yeah uh, so that you know, but that's context that is important. Yeah. So again, we come back to this, like the way that they've chopped this together. Uh, you know, you learn that pretty soon into the next episode is that they have no bullets uh, in any of their guns. Um, but do you think Joel would have done something to Sam in this scenario? I don't know. Especially not now that he I has mean, an Ellie in his life. If things had gone wrong and they were more threatening than they came off as. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's much Joel wouldn't do to protect Ellie, especially. All right, fair enough. At the, I mean, at the very least, he could disarm him. I mean, he's an eight-year-old kid. He is an eight-year-old kid, which is noteworthy because this next episode, we kind of get more into the Henry and Sam story. 
in the video game, Sam is about the same age as Ellie. He is a little more passive than her in the game. Uh, he, he does not have any weapons. Um, he's mostly just like a character who follows you around. Um, but it does change the way that the, the events of this episode of the show play out. Uh, also in the game, Henry and Sam are not from Pittsburgh in that case. They are just travelers. They're they've also been they're also trying to avoid the gangs of roving um people who have freed themselves of the yoke of Fedra, but who are now just killing anybody they can get their hands on and stealing their stuff. Like that's kind of the Pittsburgh's version of the story of the the resistance. They're they don't have like a a bright side. They don't have like a, a sympathetic story the way that this Kansas City group do. They probably do in that the Fedra people were oppressive, but in the in Pittsburgh they are just waylaying folks and stealing their stuff. And they have like and you can find lists of, you know, this this on this day we got this much stuff from the tourists they call them, um, who came who were dumb enough to come to Pittsburgh and we trapped them and killed them and took their stuff. Uh, versus in Kansas City, we quickly get plunged into the story of. Well, like 10 days ago, I guess, is the first uh, couple scenes from this episode. It's like a party in the streets. They're shooting off flares, waste of flares in my opinion. But they are celebrating their victory over the Fedra forces with some brutal killings and a lot of partying in the streets. What do you guys think of these scenes? It made me miss, just just a little note about this, um, the structure of these episodes, but... You know, we've seen them do a lot of different things with the in introductory scene from each episode. So in the first two episodes, we got kind of flashbacks. Actually, in the, in the first three episodes, we got flashbacks. Maybe not in the first scene, but in the first couple of scenes. And then since then, we haven't had a flashback to the pre-pandemic time. And it kind of made me miss like those phenomenal scenes like with uh, the Malaysian um mycologist back in episode two and stuff like that i was kind of like oh like i'm fine with what they're doing here but i i those were working so well for me that this episode opening with you know a flashback just 10 days into the past made me kind of miss those that that approach was it jarring for you guys were you able to to pick up pretty quickly on the the time change I, i feel like once you see once you, yeah, I guess it, uh, once it takes a couple minutes, but you can catch up pretty quickly, right? Yeah, I was I was like, oh, they, because it feels like they do that a little bit here, so I was kind of prepped for it. Um, but I also missed the sort of pre-pandemic times too. Um, but I do think that it again it unfold it has this story unfold in a very specific way, and they give you more and more information about characters about the context. Um, and again, with the second watching, it all made so much more sense, both of these episodes, um, after, but specifically, uh, episode four. And so I liked that, um, you're seeing, but again, you're seeing it from like this, you're seeing it from a few, like a different perspective, but then you're seeing like characters fill in afterwards, um, and making decisions based on these things that they're slowly kind of feeding the audience. So it's an interesting way to process the storyline in the episodes. Um, I wasn't, I thought it was pretty, 
because the way that they the way that they edited it, Stuart, I felt like it was pretty clear that these were flashbacks. But did you feel jarred? By, were you jarred by it? I would say it just took me a second to realize that we were going back in time, even though it's 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 easy, it's obvious enough when you are like, oh, Fe you know, this is Fedra, Fedra's getting killed. And then we're back in a, a jail, a jail cell with Kathleen pretty quickly. And um, she's asking about Henry again or still or I guess originally. Um and and you know Kyle you you were mentioning that you didn't think she'd been in charge that long and I would actually contest that that um her brother had been the leader of the resistance Henry yeah. as we learned in this episode turned him in in order to get leukemia medication for Sam yeah. Sam who is now completely healthy from from all intents and purposes or for, from what we can tell yeah um so I think it, it had been some time that she like basically though the, the act of Henry turning over Michael, Kathleen's brother, as we learned in this episode, to Fedra and getting the leukemia meds. And maybe Dr. Edelstein was the one who like administered them and, and cured Sam. Mm. That during that whole period is when Kathleen rose to power and became the call, the shot caller for the resistance, uh, which led to their eventual victory. So it was kind of like this whole really cool fulcrum point of Henry making that decision to do that, which actually led to the downfall of Fedra. Um, which I think is a, like a cool thing to to consider when when Kathleen later is talking about fate and you're just like, don't you understand that Henry is why you got to this point? Because if you're if if, Henry, if your brother hadn't been killed, you would never have been in charge of the resistance. Right. I just thought that was a cool thing to like. Well, and it's consider. also I, I mean, the other piece of this is that she she orchestrated the downfall of the resistance. So even though her brother had been the leader, he did not succeed in this point and that's something that um her second in command basically says um but then again what does that say because you know there's like there's a lot there's so much nuance in this and so much from like a a moral point of view and there's just so many different like like it, it it's just a really interesting way <laughs> to be portraying these characters um but um but you know, back to sort of how they they're letting these like storylines unfold. I thought that there was like a slight desaturation in how they showed these flashbacks to which is a little bit of why I was like, oh, there must just be this is like a sort of a weird jump back. But then they're going to like kind of like move forward into this story. And we're kind of seeing parallel storytelling or at least enough storytelling that we're now getting the sort of blanks filled in while, you know, Joel and Ellie are off doing their thing. So um, it was, I think we'll probably see more of this down the line, but this was a, very, a really just a complex but interesting way to, to show these different characters and the different sides of the, the story. Um, I can't remember whether it's in this episode or the last episode too that we see that there's essentially a big bulging, you know, uh, thing in the ground that, presumably infected or on the other side of that's within the borders of Kansas city that Kathleen just completely decides to ignore. Yeah. yeah that was, the la that was the she last episode. The, she closes the door and is like, let's, let's not tell anybody else. About <laughs> yeah. Henry, Henry, Henry is still my priority. Yeah. She, this is clearly like a blind spot for her. And mm -hmm. Perry, I think Perry knows and is clearly you know, like putting across that that's a problem and that they need, they have, mm -hmm. they have other things they should be doing. But he's not going to argue with her because 
she she gets stuff done. Uh, but yeah, so we we know that there's a big bulging floor thing. They have a bulging floor problem, of whatever that might mean. I think we can all guess. Oh no! I mean, we, we they later reveal exactly what, what it might be, because um, Henry gives some exposition about how Fedra drove the infected underground. So, um, but his exposition seems to suggest that it's all been dealt with, and they're they're all clear. It's all good. <laughs> Nothing, no problems underground, right? Um, <laughs> it's just fantastic. What were you saying about Fedra, Kyle? Oh, I was just, I was going to say a very similar thing, which is that, you know, the story is that Fedra drove all of the infected underground. So, um, Kathleen and the rest of the resistance, you know, for most of their adult lives, their enemy has been Fedra, not the infected. So, you know, I think it kind of explains why they have, um, that they're not putting enough emphasis on that, on that threat. The, the, uh, comparison here is quite interesting that boston the city has more and more infected every year tess and joel talk about that when they're trying to get out of boston right once they leave the qz kansas city by comparison has not had any infected above ground they might think that it's been solved for 15 years so like five years after infection day um they've basically been good to go and that's pretty wild to to consider yeah so like you're right kyle and and this is something i kept thinking about too is like so fedra fema you know the federal government the this this army um in kansas apparently has been really bad like they are rapers and killers and murderers and torturers uh but they're part of this bigger organiz organization but clearly like this makes it seem like it's more like city states because Kansas City Fedra and Joel and Henry have a conversation about this in this episode, has this reputation of being way worse than other Fedras, I guess, right? So I thought that that was kind of a cool piece of world building, is that it gives you the impression that they're not a, a monolith. They are they are whatever you get in the city you're in. Um, so I thought that was pretty neat. I also, like, look, I, I, I do think that the sort of flashbacks about how bad Fedra was in the city um, is really important. And it, it helps illustrate sort of why there is this unyielding idea about the punishment and the, ven the, the revenge. Um, but it's also, um, I guess, because there aren't infected walking around, there is like a, just a whole different dynamic here. And so that they have the, I don't want to say the luxury, but they do they, because they're not fighting or because the infected were not the prime enemy, at least for them after, you know, for the last few years. So it's interesting to see how this is different. Although you do get a little bit of the sense of that in the Boston Fedra, the QZ a little bit um, because, you know, it's, I mean, it's not quite this brutal, but there's definitely um, an authoritarian mindset and you have people trying to sort of get out from under that. Um, but but at least from what we saw, I don't think it's quite as brutal as this. Um, and so that this gives you sort of like a different perspective where around the country, how these different Fedras evolve depending on the region, similar to what you were saying, Stuart. Um, I think evolve is a really important word because it's been 20 years. Like this is right. a generational amount of time, mm -hmm. like generational change will happen over 20 years. And so 
like to consider that Fedra now is the same as it was on election day. Like that's, that's part of that. That what makes this interesting is that like in one of the, one of those brief, brief flashes of that, of those early scenes where they're beating the hell out of all the Fedra people who are left in mm-hmm. Kansas city. One of them has really long hair. Right. And I'm just like, that doesn't make any sense. Like th- it looks like, uh, you know, Greg Nicotero or something <laughs> is in Fedra. And I, I'm just like, I had a, a, a vision of like, what a weird federal band of of terrorists the this Fedra in Kansas City must have been like. So I thought that was, but yeah, the, just thinking about this in terms of the world building, I think is the mo- one of the more fascinating parts of this. And then thinking about it in terms of Kathleen now and the resistance run all of the QZ, all of the open city within this square of highways that Henry kind of illustrates to Joel and Ellie the next morning. Um, and this is after he's also acknowledged to Joel why he is a wanted man, mm-hmm. the fact that he's a collaborator, and and that that really you know we were we've already kind of gone over this, but the 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 gray area that he inhabits because he turned over he he traded one man's life for his brother, mm-hmm. and and this is a question that this show and this game uh, really really try to make you consider if not answer over and over again well what's interesting about it and what they're forcing you to think about is that you know kathleen went on this journey to to overthrow fedra um yeah probably in part because of the way uh, how brutal they were but mainly because they took and they and they killed her brother um and so she would have gone all out at least from what we know of her to save her brother and she would have probably done the same exact thing that Henry did for Sam if she were in his shoes. So that's that's... funny. It's funny considering the end of this episode and the speech she's giving Henry. Yeah. Right. And, but you totally, I mean, she, she is a complete hypocrite from her perspective. It's like, she's right. This is what she's doing. But as an audience member, it's just a really interesting way to examine these things. And then, you know, all the brutality that that the Fedra group has has reigned upon this this group of resistors and you know her reaction in terms of like she's gonna put all these collaborators to death um and is that any better and so that's and we see this over and over again the walking dead that like you know the power depending on who wields it um and that will shape what the next sort of philosophy or or reign of you know, whatever the ruling, whatever the ruling class is, um, you're going to see their values reflected in in how they decide um, to either. I wouldn't say, well, I guess rule or govern or whatever way you want to want to put it. So it's, um, but it's. I thought this was a more interesting way of looking at it and viewing it and learning about it versus somehow how some other shows kind of roll this kind of idea out. So. Yeah. We definitely get a pretty one-dimensional view of her governing, mm-hmm. her her version of governance. It's just f- find Henry door to door, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, we know that she has provisions because she talks about doubling the guards on the provisions. So we know that there is a stockpile of food, but we don't see her like trying to increase it or anything like that. So there are definitely like blank spots, or maybe she's not doing anything other than looking for Henry, and that certainly could be the case based on her characterization. I don't think it is, though, because I don't think that she would have such loyalty if that's all she was doing. 
But I think we're seeing a little window and we're seeing this like sort of final push to get Henry and that this has become her all consuming obsession. And maybe that's kind of what it's been like, but I don't know. Maybe she feels like if she just reaches this one goal and gets rid of him, that they can just go on. I don't know. But, um, you know, the instant karma in this particular episode is pretty <laughs> good. It certainly comes back. Kyle, are you trying to get in there? Oh, I, I know. I just, I, I think it's interesting that the show, like, kind of sort of accidentally makes an argument for fascism here. Like, they um, do. <laughs> Like, it, is it an accident? It's like the argument for the imperial galactic uh, empire as opposed to the republic. You know, uh, yeah, the, it's like, and you, you know, like we we know that at the end of this episode, this episode ends with basically a zombie horde led by an unstoppable bloater turning their gaze toward Kansas City and walking off into, you know, the night. And um, you know, it's like <laughs> Kansas City, fifteen years of. You know, infection in infected free governance under Fedra. Fourteen days of infected free governance under the resistance. So it just, you know, I don't know whether exactly how intentional it was, but um, you know, basically, it's it's another story of like people who think they're doing the right thing, but but cause their own downfall. I mean, but that's that's the point you were trying to get at earlier. Was like, is Fedra maybe a good thing because they had yes, exactly kept, like they had kept it they, under wraps. I mean, obviously, this Fedra didn't seem to be that great, but like, you know, life in the QZ seems better than life outside of the QZ, you know, in, in all the examples we've seen by the end of episode five. So there uh, is a hypothetical scenario here because we know that they have thousands of people and there's only like 40 or 50 in that final scene. They have thousands of people or hundreds, at least, let's say, in the resistance of Kansas City who are not there getting destroyed at the end of this episode. Um, there's a scenario where they can close the doors to the QZ and everybody is fine. Like they'll, they'll have bloaters and clickers and all kinds of crap outside the, right outside the wall. The things won't be great, but they could survive at least as long as their provisions last. Maybe it's a lot of hummers and hummers and guns that went out the door though. I mean, we're, we're jumping around now, but I don't know. I feel, I have to feel like that was a lot of the like best, both like, you know, fighters and also equipment that that these folks have who, who all got. Yeah, I think you're right, Kyle. Because, okay, because... I'm just trying to be optimistic here, guys. That's all. <laughs> yeah, well, because she was kind of doing the whole like Gary Oldman, I want everybody, like from the professional and professional, like everybody. What do you mean by everybody? Like it felt like they were going all out to find Henry. So I think I think you might be right, Kyle. That that's yeah. Kind of... There's probably okay. Um, so we've are, we've kind of we have jumped to the end of the episode because that's like the you know the money shot for this whole episode. But we also have a lot of great scenes between uh, Sam and Henry in the attic where they're hiding uh, at the beginning of this episode. A lot of this episode is also in American Sign Language um, or written on uh, Sam's little like uh, magic pad. I forget what those things are called. Mm-hmm. Um, this was this was some good some great stuff did you guys hear on the podcast with uh craig and neil and uh troy baker that kivan the the kid who plays sam was found through twitter they just did like oh. an open casting call on twitter that's great that's great uh because i love he... the changes they made with his characterization yeah, here. I, cool. I mean yeah it, it adds such a such a dimension to their relationship and to his story 
Uh, it's apparently not so easy to find like an eight-year-old American Sign Language proficient, you know, black actor <laughs> in Canada and the United States. Uh, but they just happened to find this one kid. He didn't have representation. It's his first time on screen, and he totally hits it out of the park. Um, and those were some great scenes. And we got to see again with this back and forth between four and five. We got to see like Kathleen finds their attic and, or with Perry uh, in episode four and you see all the drawings on the walls. Uh, but then you get to see him and Henry or mostly him doing those drawings uh, throughout these this montage or these few scenes in episode five, which that, and that montage or series of scenes ends with Henry saying, we're good. I know their patterns. We can make a break for it. Edelstein's probably dead. We're out of food. Um, and then crash and gunshots and it's the ambush scene and you get to see it again from across the street which i mentioned earlier and that's super cool uh but also sobering to think that they might have just walked outside and there was brian or you know one of those other two suckers who ends up dead in that scene um they then though uh have followed or somehow yeah, I guess they've just kept tabs on Joel and Ellie as they went to the city and climbed up to the building. They have this interaction. They're like, hey, let me help you get out of the city. Here's the stuff. It's the tunnels, yo. The tunnels have no infected in them. Or if there are some, you can handle it because we have no bullets and I've never killed anybody. And I'm basically a good guy, even though I sold out the leader of the resistance and caused this <laughs> massive uh, schism. Not schism, really. Uh, just, you know, revolution. Um, the the tunnels scene in the show tries to model basically a long sewer section of the video game where you and Sam and Henry and Ellie are navigating a series of sewers. And in this section of the video game, you find a lot of notes if you're looking for them. Uh, and I guess it's, it, you could miss them, but I, I don't suppose, Kyle, that uh, do you know the story of Ish? I don't really remember. I think I did read those when I was playing the game through, but it's been so long that, that that's not something that sticks in my mind. Did you pick up on it in the show at all? or I think it's that I think it's that community of kids who was living underground in those kind of bunkery things who I presume are the same kid clickers that we see later um, in the episode. They must have you know gotten found out eventually by some infected. But okay, they, well... they explore kind of their living quarters there. It's it's kind of an Easter egg for the show um, in in that children room, that rec room. And it's not like a community of children. It's a in the video game anyway. And I think this is an allusion to it in the game, in the show. Uh, this is a, a sizable community that has been built up, which includes children. Um, so they have like this rec area for the kids and there are adults who live there, too. Um, and in the game. Uh, you're getting a lot of this context through things like those painted walls, which happen, which you see in the game environments too, but also these these notes that you're finding signed by this person named Ish. You first find you find the first note on a crashed like fishing boat, um, and it's like probably a reference to Ishmael, I assume, like you know the white whale, Moby Dick, etc. Uh, but you find probably like eight notes from Ish throughout the game, um, and in the in the show. Uh, and, and in those notes, he kind of talks about setting up this community and how it basically how it's going and how it eventually falls apart. And um, in that room in the show, there's a drawing on the wall that says our protectors, Danny and Ish. And it shows these two dudes in like 
armor and holding guns. So that was a huge shout out to that kind of never really told story in the video game. That was just told through through notes that you can find and read. And it's one of those really cool environmental storytelling elements of the game that you get to see. So I was really happy to see that. Uh, it's also a bit of a peaceful supermarket. Like, you know, when you, when you listen to the podcast, Druckmann and Mazin talk about wanting to not exhaust the audience. And I think that's where those supermarket scenes come from, H.A., that we've talked about so many times. It's yep. kind of like you got to give your audience an amuse-bouche or like a palate cleanser. And those scenes really help with that. And so that's what one of, that's part of what that scene is doing here. Well, yeah. And I mean, I also think for the, you know, for Ellie's character, she's interacting with a lot of adults. We haven't really seen her interact with kids up until now. And, you know, there is, you also feel like, look, when when it was going on, I like, <laughs> I was like, oh, this isn't going to end well, you know, like, like, cause it is so hopeful and, and she does bond so well with Sam and you even see Joel looking at them with some concern um and he still is trying to keep the boundaries up even with Sam you know definitely with Sam and Henry and kind of saying to Ellie well they'll go their way and we can go our way and you know and there's unfortunately like at the last minute like we see like that he relents a bit on this point but um and then it's kind of like okay they can come with us and it you know like not I don't want to spoil it well I guess I mean, we're going to spoil it eventually but it it almost you know it gives this idea that the minute Joel or anybody lets their guard down they're going to get hurt or that vulnerable piece is going to get hurt so you can see why he's so careful to keep those boundaries in place because over and over again um, it you know and he's also worried about Ellie getting hurt I think clearly but um it is beautiful how they build up the relationship, but uh, you know, I I just always have a suspicion when they're doing this, and so of course I I have a lot of concerns about other things in the show, in terms of the relationships between characters. But um, even with like the comic books, and they're making this sort of like a refrain throughout this uh, throughout this episode, um you you just see like there's like a hope that Ellie has that now she isn't completely alone um that there's i wouldn't call it like a family but it is kind of a family you know in the sense that it isn't just her and Joel alone and i think that there is a hopefulness in that for her and Joel is sort of like resistant to that but then he's almost like okay i guess i guess we can do that and you know it's but but and then the parallel between their two relationships is definitely there too and i think it's kind of hard not to see that if you're joel like seeing this stuff going on between sam and henry and even henry's comment to joel which is oh you're a dad he's like oh well you might not be her dad but you were somebody's dad and you know i i think it would be really hard not to to see and to worry that things are going to end up the same way for him and ellie that they are for for um, Sam and Henry. And so um, I I thought that that was pretty well done, but also incredibly heart heartbreaking. And even though I watched both of these twice and it wasn't quite as heartbreaking for me as episode three was, it was still like the end of this episode was just to me just heartbreaking in a lot of ways. But can yeah, we, can we totally talk about, dude. can we talk about um, 
I would really like to talk about like the ending scene in this unless you well, I mean, wait the ending scene or the no, no, no. scene the the well the both scenes both the the yeah. sort of battle scene and then the ending scene so um yeah, so I think it's the, time we get to the big, the big zombie smash. Yeah, yeah the, I mean, the sniper scene also bears a little bit of mention because it also is a direct parallel from the game, um, and so is the final, final scene in the motel. Uh, the the uh, zombie eruption out of the ground is not in the game, but like there's a slight parallel to it. There's like five clickers that come out of the floor instead of millions. Mm. Um, but the sniper scene. <laughs> uh, is is a big deal in the game because you're like you're trying to fight this the sniper in the game is not like 80 years old and has like 10 friends so it's actually fairly challenging uh and you're by yourself trying to just deal with it because nobody else is getting out from behind the car i love this scene i love the fact that joel says it's dark and he's a terrible shot and he can't see and he's not going to shoot me i I love the i loved all earlier joel kind of like um he kind of has a moment as well in the truck with Ellie when they first crash where he's just like, they're not going to hit you. It seems like a lot of Joel's strategy is just assume that other people are really terrible shots and, <laughs> and, and roll with it. I think it's projection. Like it, it, it you know, it's like journaling. It's like positive uh, visualization. Like you get low <laughs> and you crawl to that hole in the wall. They will not hit you. And you know, it comes true. You. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so he gets, he, you know, it's very sad in a way. Like they, they again, they kind of personalize the sniper, even though he doesn't have any lines. The dude is ancient. Craig and uh, Mason and and Neil Druckmann talk about this in the podcast again. They're like, this guy basically commits suicide by Joel. He's like eighty years old. He was sixty when the infection started. He's done. He doesn't want to be. He doesn't want to live anymore. So he is going to turn around and raise his gun to joel i thought that was hilarious like it's kind of like a director's commentary and i always have enjoyed those so i still uh, endorse that podcast if you guys don't listen to it or if anybody doesn't listen to it um but then so then he gets himself that nice sniper rifle and uh then we hear kathleen's voice on the radio on the walkie-talkie which they don't overuse on this show ha i'll just point they out you do not i thought the same thing <laughs> <laughs> anytime a walkie-talkie is is happening we have our uh criticism ears uh, perk up <laughs> but <laughs> this this set uh it's i forget how long they said it was on the podcast but it's like it, they built this whole town this whole street was was constructed custom for this scene uh this series of scenes so them walking down it, the sniper, the zombie eruption. Um, the I, I would say like the most interesting parts of the scene are not necessarily that the cars come and that they crash, like Joel manages to make the big truck crash. It's mostly the interaction between Kathleen and Henry and then what happens next. Would you agree? Yep. The, this And they're about to do some very impressive things and I don't want to step on any of those impressive things because when the zombie horde comes out it's genuinely awesome and terrifying at the same time Um, but this was what i was talking about earlier where i just found the blocking really awkward like they let the resistance people get too close like the truck it comes too close and so like basically they're standing like 10 feet apart from each other and there's like 60 dudes with assault rifles and i'm just like why aren't they moving like why don't they just go get them like they can you know they they know they're right behind this car that's right there um, this is the place where I thought that just like they, the way that it came out on camera 
made the resistance folks look a little bit ridiculous because like they could easily have shot or just run up to Ellie when they first arrive. And then secondly, like they, you know, they, they clearly see where Ellie and Henry get off to and they're right behind a car that's right there. So I just thought it would just seemed a little awkward to me. I would say there's a couple of conflicting things happening with the, this group of, of yokels. Um, number one is Perry seems to know what he's doing. And when he sees where Joel is, he says, he's up there. You two go around that way. You two go around that way. And we never see those four people. <laughs> like nope. They should show up behind Joel at some point in the next two minutes and kill him. Uh, but they never show up. Um, so I don't know. We can say that they like, turned around when they heard the commotion but the but the commotion doesn't start for a minute or so because kathleen has to monologue and yeah she you know monologues and monologues and like you know there you go um and this is the the sort of point between her and henry where it's just like all right already you know we get your point i i don't know if there is just this weird i don't know do you think that the people listening agree with her because because part of me and this to your point kyle with all these people standing there with weapons and nobody's like really getting him or or taking care of this business but they're so clearly outgunned and out at like outpersoned basically um and then you hear her talking about how maybe his brother should have died i don't know like i don't know that to me that's just sort of the sign of a leader that has now fully gone off the deep end um Go and ahead, so, kyle i'm sure you want to jump in yeah no maybe that's that's a good point maybe that's maybe they're kind of like doubting their mission there because they're, they're not they're not that scared of the sniper because none of them are behind cover or anything they're all just standing there right and maybe they're like legit trying to figure out you know whose side they're on in this little you know battle of wills and and whether they're ready to basically kill some kids here today Right, because that's um, what's on the line. She's yeah. not just saying he should have died, although she is. She's also saying, "We're I'm going to kill both you and your little brother, <laughs> who's eight years old right now, and I don't have and any this other and this other and this other child." Well, mm-hmm. she doesn't know. Yeah, like that. That's an unknown. So you know, we can kind of let her off the hook, but she would no, probably she kill. Says, no, she would she, kill Ellie too. No, she no, says she she, she literally kill. says yeah she yeah goes, she's she's literally like we're going to kill that girl who's with you too or something. Yeah. Because she says, because he, she was responsible for whatever that guy's name, that his death, and so she's not innocent, and so, uh, like that's what was striking me is that she's sitting there basically being like, all right, so now our mission is done, but we're also, we're not only gonna kill Henry, but we're gonna hear, kill these two kids too, and they're complicit because they're by association guilty. And as soon as she unholsters her her gun. The truck starts to sink into the ground in the background, and that was some beautiful. I mean, say what you want about blocking Kyle, but they had to have them behind that car and that close for that shot to work. True. I don't know. Maybe True. not. <laughs> well, uh, and then, and then, uh, you know, I, I I love the idea that maybe as they've been driving these Hummers out there, like the zombie horde has been following them, like beneath the surface, like listening right. to where they're cars are going up above so they can be in just the right place at just the right time because because i figured that's supposed to be the same bloater or they're just cheek by jowl down there dude i mean they could just be packed in in. but but, uh, but they continue to come out tunnels well not 
maybe not those exact ones. I don't know. Yeah, yeah there's not, there's yeah. plenty we don't know about it, but um, from when the truck goes down and infected start to come out of the ground until the final uh, like kind of um, gantry shot of the street, there are zombies or infected coming up out of that hole. They never stop coming up out of that hole. Uh, <laughs> and they're covering they're like by the end they're carpeting the ground the dead ones along with the dead members of the resistance but they they are continuously pouring out of the hole in the ground um and this I just... vibe this like this uh or this effect is what um world war z was trying to achieve like uh, like in that movie the zombies are fast and they there's a lot of them and so they would occasionally form these like huge piles or basically just but they were kind of cgi and lame and not that scary um and here like you really do feel the like ferocity and otherworldliness and you know how terrifying it would be to go up against you know a, a real horde um, which we have not seen so far in the show and i think it's also interesting to state that like this is the first time we've seen this a, a zombie on this show in like six hours of television. Mm-hmm. Like it's <laughs> really since Tess's death or very shortly thereafter, have we seen a zombie since then? So like they, I like that they kind of like batch it up for these big battles instead of giving it to you all over the place. Uh, there's not only one type of horror in this infected reveal, because not only do you have that, kind of yeah horde mode where they pour out and like jump off of cars and stuff and they're everywhere and they're on top of you uh you also have the bloater which is like a boss model version of a zombie which you've already fought in the game by this point in the storyline they're really hard to kill um and they just like if they get close to you you're dead and so i like the fact that they showed exactly how lethal these things are um, so that's your second type of horror. Your third horror is the child clicker, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, was was portrayed by a child contortionist acrobat in the in the show, and her little weird um, flips and uh, and skittering inside that SUV were definitely the third <laughs> the third flavor of my Neapolitan ice cream of horror in this episode. It was terrifying. And uh, and I can also say, like, even after all this is going on, you know, Perry sacrifices himself to save Kathleen. Kathleen is still focused on Henry. And that is a part that I'm just like, at this point, like, I don't know. I, to me, I didn't fully buy that, honestly. I just was like, she's not going to still go after anybody at this point. She's going to run or she's going to, like... I, I just don't see that being when when they erupted and in this way and when Perry gets taken out, I just can't see that this is going to be her still like her reason for living. I don't know. It just felt I don't know what you think, Kyle. It just felt weird to me because her survival it, would probably be the most important at this point. And it, she doesn't even it's it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I, I I think it makes sense with her character as presented thus far, but I think they could have avoided this just by having it, like giving it a little bit more distance. Like, yeah. have her have them get a little further into the woods so that the carnage is truly like far behind them, and then meet up with her, and then have there be like this one random clicker. Because it even 
still kind of Baker's belief that these characters, again, because because the militia was so close to where the um, protagonists were hiding, like they're all up in all those zombies. And even with Joel's like sniper support, it kind of like it, it, there's some pretty serious plot armor going on here for at least most of the <laughs> most yeah. of the protagonists, not quite all the protagonists, as it turns out. Um, but uh, yeah, like just do it, you know, have them get a half mile and then, you know, have her come out and, and then get ambushed by a zombie and you, you completely avoid the problem. Right. Yeah. Having her pop out and say stop instead of just shooting also is tur- turning her back on like you know, like you to your point, Stuart, turning her back on like 350 zombies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, doesn't make sense. So uh, that that ends with her being killed by a child clicker, which again, Crazen, Mazen, and Druckmann were very, uh, very happy, like kind of gleefully rubbing their hands about the fact that she had just said kids die all the time to Henry, and then is killed by a child <laughs> zombie. They were like, "Yes, this is what we wanted." Um, so Melanie Linsky, we loved you. You were great. You, you died to a child acrobatic, uh, contortionist zombie and couldn't have been happier. This is kind of a noble question, but do you guys think that anybody there had ever seen a bloater before? Because most of the Kansas city folks like Henry seem very unfamiliar with the zombies. I mean, he knows what a clicker is, but he's obviously never seen one before this. Perry um, seemed to know exactly how bad the situation was yeah. <laughs> when he's, he looks at it and he like makes eye contact with its face, uh, coral fungus. And is like, you should go <laughs> to, uh, yeah. and to I was Kathleen. trying to figure out whether Joel had that same moment of recognition or whether this is something new to Joel as well. You know, I always assume that when Joel said that some of the infected are 20 years old who have been around since the beginning, I always assumed that that was what he was talking about was bloaters, but, I could be that's just me making a, that assumption. I feel like Joel's seen a lot and you know Perry maybe <laughs> knew what this was. I do think everybody else was taken aback by it because they haven't really been dealing with this. And they In the video not- game, the first time you see a bloater, I feel like Joel does he calls it out by name. Um Yeah, so, in the yeah. video game I think he definitely knows what it is. Uh, uh but yeah. So um you know, and then it, and then we we kind of alluded to this earlier, but then the horde like basically turns as one and heads toward Kansas City, and and I, I don't really know whether they're. I, we talked about this a while ago. I don't really know whether they're going to go down this path, but I definitely think there is a case to be made here for some sort of hive mind. Like mm-hmm. they are really working in coordination in a way that you know that could be deliberate like the the bloater seemed to almost kind of be leading the charge as he kind of like roars and like shakes his arm and then like stomps off toward kansas city and so i'm i'm curious to see whether they pick up that thread or whether i'm reading too much into things i'd love to see that bonus content episode where it's the siege of kansas city um well what's left of them so but i i think based on you and ha you don't think you don't have too many hopes for uh the leftovers of the uh the resistance <laughs> Zero. Yeah, I think if maybe pockets of them could have gotten away, but definitely not surviving in Kansas City. I think this horde yeah. is taking care is gonna mop up in there. Yeah, maybe. If they can't get those QZ doors closed, uh they're definitely done. But the final, final uh scenes of this episode, at first you're like, Oh, this is sweet, this is nice. Uh, you know, Ellie is reading to Sam. Um, Joel and Henry are like having dad talk, but really dad 
not like non-dad figure to other non-dad figure because it's like brother to complete non-related person uh talking trash about endure and survive and um and there is some real parallels to the video game here where ellie and sam have this conversation about what scares you and ellie reveals and it's really ellie's revelation i think that is most important because sam well doesn't stick around that long um is that she's scared of ending up alone uh so that's kind of the biggest takeaway from the scene and that's really kind of cruel to say considering how it ends up yeah but you know what only joel and ellie are on the artwork for this show so none of us should be that surprised in how it ends up um, i wasn't i wasn't surprised but what i was surprised about is that you know sam and henry were surrounded by all of these infected and i would imagine that and maybe this is just me being myself but i would imagine if you go through that one of the things you say to them is hey did any of you get bitten <laughs> or like inspect somebody for bites i mean because we're also you know joel who's like the most cautious about this kind of thing um although maybe he doesn't want them to check out ellie too closely as he said he doesn't want people to know what had happened to her but um he does give some uh, like share some information with them but like i don't know like i think that it would have been obvious that sam was bitten just the way he's acting and the way, you know, it's not like it's a pretty severe bite on his pants. I mean, the I two of them under that car, just kicking the clickers away right. is perfect opportunity to get bitten. Right. So anyway, I yeah. was bothered by that. And then, you know, I'm also really bothered by the fact that, you know, I, I know Ellie is trying to help and she thinks she has his magic blood. So she tries to like give him a weird infusion, which, you know, I think we can all understand and agree that that's not going to be enough to do it whatever kind of antibodies or whatever resistance she's got going on in her blood it depends how magic your blood is dude i, I mean so. you know. if you're a magic vampire maybe i don't know but anyway i wouldn't have been going to sleep in a room with sam i can tell you that much <laughs> well uh, uh, yeah her falling asleep on guard duty also plays into future episodes on this show so mm -hmm. i was kind of happy that to see that she is not immune to this effect I mean, and she has a history of saying she's not going to fall asleep and then falling asleep. <laughs> and then she falls asleep. You're right. You're right. You're right. So anyway, but, but this was yeah. pretty heartbreaking. Ended up where I yeah. thought it would end. You know, instead of the this this group of four going off together and offering support to each other, it ends incredibly tragically. Um, I did think that this scene was really well done because, you know, Ellie's fighting, you know, for her life because because Sam is is really um really strong and just caught her off guard because she was asleep um and then joel and and henry burst into the room and the tension here is really great um and then the and it is incredibly tragic but i i mean i think i saw where it was going but it was there was this moment because you know henry's looking at his little brother and he's looking at his little brother who he saved and and he knows exactly what's happening um and then he does what what he has to which is like to take to kill sam and it's really horrible i the guy just and i mean this pulls out your heartstrings it's deliberate but the the facial expressions of all these actors were, were just in, incredibly well done heartbreaking sad and um they show all the feelings i don't know how you were feeling Stuart kyle but this was this was really hard to watch 
I'll admit I did not watch this scene a second time. I just couldn't do it. So, Kyle. Yeah, I mean, especially since you know that Henry has never killed anybody before, and then the first person that he has to kill is his yeah. little brother. It's just, I mean, it it's so tragic that it actually crosses a line into like pseudo manipulative. Where I'm just like, we have been basically bamboozled into a situation of like maximal pathos here. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it just, it, it feels a tiny bit contrived where it's just like, what's the saddest fucking thing we can do here, you know, that we can possibly squeeze out of this. But I mean, it works. It's, it's heartbreaking. And, um, when Henry kills himself, it's, uh, uh, incredible acting showcase for Bella Ramsey because she makes this kind of like little whimper that is just kind of, drives the point completely home about you know how quickly she's having to grow up and the the horrifying things that that she's seen that's you know no nobody can escape this without you know some serious ptsd and 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 just being a very fucked up person so um yeah it it's so sad i think it's also this thing where it's like joel's almost like see this is why we can't be close and this is why yeah (laughs) building up my boundaries um and it's hard not to see themselves i think in in sam and henry in the the video game you kind of jump from here into uh, a future scene um from like right from that suicide to cut to black to now it's the future and we're in the West and months have elapsed. Um, and Joel is much more cold to Ellie um, going forward, as opposed to in the show, we get to see them actually burying Henry and Sam. And Ellie is actually being colder to to Joel mm-hmm. um, in a way, just like, let's just go, let's walk West. Um, yeah, I, I, I watched this last night and had to watch something else before I could go to sleep as a a, a palate cleanser, just because it was yeah. It's this really does punch you right in the right in the feels. So, but that brings us to the end of episode five. I know we're we're behind. Like tonight, episode seven airs, I think. So we're gonna mm-hmm. we have still some catching up to do. The next time we get together, we might do one or two episodes. Um, and I'm sorry that we were so late in getting this onto the airs but we are doing our best um fantastic two episodes i think and and watched together and watched more than once really helps in my opinion agree yeah i totally agree um if you want to get a hold of us you can email us at reanimatedpodcast at gmail.com we're on twitter at reanimatedpcast for now and you can catch all of our episodes on the internet at reanimated.podbean.com I'm Stuart, and uh, I'm saying goodbye and thank you. Until next time, ciao, and thanks for listening. See you.